Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM for Green Left Radio. And you're, and you're with presenters myself, Jacob. And me, Ari. I'm finally back. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you, um, good to have you back, Ari. Um, I, don't think, I think the last time you've been a presenter on the program has probably been a few months ago, although that's, yeah. we have to have to take into account there was, a, there was a bit of a holiday um, break anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. Now... I guess before I um, go into what we're kind of covering on the on our program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, um, and that sovereignty was never ceded. Mm. Now, probably um, the kind of fair, for for our program today, we have a we have a recording of an interview with Baruz Boshani, which was actually part of a, which was actually recorded as a Green Left show, and you can actually view it online on the Green Left website. But we're going to be um, playing a recording of this of of an interview with Baruz Boshani, you know, featuring discussions about his latest book, Freedom Only Freedom, um, and I'll and we'll go play that a bit later. But I guess the first sort of thing is, I think, probably the most in, um, Usually for um, this part of the program, we go into kind of covering some kind of headline kind of news. And probably the main kind of headline news discussion, I guess, we want to kind of have on our program is actually having a bit of a discussion about the Invasion Day protest um, that happened mm. um, yesterday. And in fact, they happened all kind of around the cities. I mean, yeah. Ari, did you want to kind of start off? Yeah, or- yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> we, we were the one in Melbourne, um, which we were estimating had maybe... Uh, probably about 30,000 people there. And it was really impressive and, like, really encouraging to see the numbers coming back up post-COVID because, as we've talked about a bit before on the show, there has been something of a slump in terms of activism in Melbourne particularly, um, it seems like, in terms of big protests and um, kind of mobilizations on the street has sort of not really recovered from COVID very well. And having so many people turn out to Invasion Day yesterday was just really lovely to see. And a lot of people, um, or at least a number of people I talked to, were saying that it was one of their first protests back since the the lockdowns and COVID started. So it's really good to see, A, the numbers coming back up, and B, the number of people who are really invested in this issue and who turned out um, despite, you know, some returns of, you know, kind of COVID anxiety, so to speak, not anxiety about COVID, but COVID lockdown-induced anxiety or whatever, which I know I've certainly had a problem with um, in terms of getting back into things a bit. But, yeah, like I said, and we'll keep saying it was just really nice and encouraging to see. And it was a great crowd, lots of energy. 
and lots of great speakers. Um, and we have a, um, a little a write-up on Green Left as well. Uh, Invasion Day protests demand sovereignty now from Carrie Smith, who's just sort of done a bit of a summary of like what was the general tone. But I thought it was, in terms of numbers, it's also really interesting. She was saying, um, Carrie was saying that Sydney had probably fifteen to 20,000 people. And um, like I said, Melbourne probably had about 30,000 people. There was about 200 people in Cairns, um, about 5,000 people in Adelaide, which was apparently the city's largest protest action in years. And there are also a lot of really good photos in this article from various rallies around the country. So I encourage people to check it out because it's really nice. And I'm pretty sure Green Left is still collating kind of reports on the Brisbane um, Northern Territory and... um, and um, what was the other one? Canberra. I think there was Canberra, Brisbane, mm. and Northern Territory kind of rallies. Yeah. Um, that, and also WA, um, Perth, haven't really kind of been reported on. But um, from the kind of initial reports I've kind of seen on social media, I, um, the, rally, those, the rally sizes were quite big. Um, and I think probably just a few, I guess a few kind of other comments to kind of note. I mean, probably one of the interesting things about these rallies was they were called, I guess, in the context of... You know the, and we've kind of discussed this previously on on our program. In the context of um, the Labor Party, you know, pushing um, pushing the voice to Parliament referendum, and in fact that is supposed to be due to be coming in, I think, August this year. Now, in terms of the politics, um, probably one of the main sort of slogans that was kind of apparent at the Melbourne rally was was essentially, and of course there were. Um, there was there was different. This was sort of worded differently at different rallies, but in Sydney, sovereignty before voice was essentially was in a sense the lead banner. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the rally in Melbourne um, essentially um, central demand was Shreedy before voice. Yeah. Now, I think this is kind of interesting in a sense. I think it is. I mean, in in a sense, I mean, a lot of the uh, you know a lot of the First Nations activists have been uh, rightfully suspicious of. Of the voice, um, and of course there was um, there was probably one there was probably got there was probably one article um, there was probably one line um, from um, that was co- from 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 uh, from Lizzie Jarrett who emceed the rally in Sydney. You know, one of the comments is, "How can we have a voice to Parliament when we are still at war with the Parliament, and when the government says they need a referendum to listen to Aboriginal people, but do nothing as our people are killed and our lands are destroyed?" I think that's sort of like a good kind of quote that kind of encapsulates, I think, a certain attitude that was kind of reflected the rally. You know, there's a lot, clearly a lot of criticism of Mm. the fact that, you know, the Labor Party hasn't really offered much with this voice other than saying you're going to have a seat at the table. um, And there's not even any kind of indication that um, the voice, that the voice department will will go beyond, you know, will will act anything more than an advisory body. And I think, you know... Mm. For for a lot of the First Nations activists, they're wanting they're they wanting to demand real cut demands like treaty. Um, and I think there's quite a good opinion piece by um, Green Senator Lydia Forp in the SBS that I think is kind of worth reading, um, which kind of kind of outlines a, a number of kind of positions on this. Now, I guess another thing to kind of note is I think it was quite, the the Embracer Day turnouts w- was quite expiring, and probably one thing to that's quite kind of interesting to note is I think that 
when you look over the years, um, just a bit of kind of reflection on Invasion Day. I mean, the first Invasion Day protest I went to was in 2014. And back then, it was actually probably a relatively quite a small kind of affair. Probably had, a, I think I remember it, it might have had up to 300 to 400 people. Mm. Then in 2015, um, that's when we started to notice a huge kind of jump in numbers. And I'm pretty sure, I think the the rally size might have been around 5,000 to 8,000 around that time. Um, not as big not as big as I can tell you, but it was like big enough that mm. uh, at that time um, we had actually, you know, I remember marching with my friend and then we essentially, we just went in and took over the, inva- the Invasion Day protest. <laughs> I mean, not the Invasion Day protest, the Melbourne, um, the Australia Day Parade. Um, which we outnumbered significantly. And then every subsequent year, we have always outnumbered and um, outmobilised the Australia Day Celebrations Parade. And Mm. I think that's, that's, I think, really indicative of the wide um, impact that this movement is having. We really have, you know, we have essentially, Australia being one of the few countries that openly celebrates its colonisation, mm. the fact that we've actually shown, you know, we've openly challenged this um, this narrative, you know, through the through the direct efforts of you know First Nations activists and and their supporters, you know, con- consistently mobilising e- each year. Mm. I think that the impacts had has been quite incredible, actually, yeah. and probably the impact <laughs> when you look at it um, in the state of Victoria. It's a bit interesting to note that they quietly shelved their uh, Australia Day kind of ceremonies, um, which is which is actually kind of like I think quite indicative of a very, of a big shift that the whole day of Australia Day has simply become has simply you know from the perspective of you know the the you know the the, the mainstream kind of society it's now seen as a controversial kind of day. Mm. Yeah, which is. That sort of thing is always an interesting thing. Um, like, I know I've talked on the show before about, say, like, the corporatization of pride or whatever, but, like, when mass consciousness kind of reaches a certain point, which it it appears to or be very close to in terms of talking about Invasion Day versus Australia Day, it's sort of... That controversy can actually be quite useful, like... Um, if you want to say, to use the example of the corporatization of pride, we can talk about like merchandising and all of that sort of stuff, all these, you know, corporate social media accounts changing their icons and whatever. And as much as that's not activism exactly, it does represent the idea that like being seen to support this sort of thing is more profitable. And it's interesting seeing the the sort of approach of that with um, Invasion Day um, getting to the point in Australia where, as Jacob just said, where like the Premier of Victoria kind of will shelve um, some, you know, the Australia Day, an Australia Day celebration thing because of how big the opposition to it is. And that, that shift in um, popular consciousness is really encouraging and it's kind of it's like i haven't been going to australia day or sorry to um invasion day protests as long as jacob has but even the change from the probably the first one i went to a few years back um to to today in terms of the popular consciousness 
you know, like my say, my brother, for example, is not as political as I am. He's still got good politics mostly, but he would frequently go to you know Australia Day um, little celebrations or whatever because you know his friends are holding that, and none of them did that this year. And I just I find that interesting that some of them did that during COVID, but none of them did that this year. But and also uh, just talking about things that are encouraging, I had several friends who basically. Maybe not their very first protest, but the very first Australia Day or Invasion Day protest that they came to this year. So that growing consciousness is like really nice to see for sure. And uh, yeah, and probably just another thing to note is I also noticed, I mean, when you look at the social media of our, say, our premier, Daniel Andrews, I I noticed that there was an absence of um, saying anything about Australia Day. In fact, he hadn't posted anything on that day. Um, And also, I mean... Um, it probably hasn't had enough of an impact that Anthony Albanese has, mm. you know, did the did the whole Happy Australia Day kind of ceremonies um, in terms of their social media. But probably what was interesting to note was, I mean, this is probably just the character of the um, of the Labor government um, in a sense that it doesn't go as much with a overtly kind of right wing intervention on the. Um, that the Liberal governments frequently do around um, around Australia Day. Mm. Um, but it was sort of interesting to note that, I mean, when it came to Albanese's sort of recorded message about Australia Day, its main focus was sort of focusing on the Australia of the Year Awards, yeah. um, which frequently happens um, around the time of, of, which is actually scheduled around like the day before um, Australia, uh, Australia Day or, you know, as we call, Invasion Day. So I think there, there's definitely, I think there's definitely a lot to kind of think about and kind of reflect on. And I think, you know, I think the the protest size, as large as it was, is very encouraging. And um, yeah, hope listeners enjoy, hopefully enjoyed the free CR coverage. Mm. Now I was going to play um, a quick announcement, and we're going to go on to our first pre-recorded, um, pre-recorded um, interview that we're going to play from Baruz Bashani. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. 
Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And for this next part of the program, I was going to play a recording of the Green Left show, um, which was actually published on January um, 2nd. Um, this is the 31st Green Left show, and it's a very special interview with Baruz Boshani um, that probably many of our listeners are familiar with. Um, um, Baruz Boshani um, was an Iranian um, is an is uh, is an Iranian um, Kurdish um, journalist and author um, who was imprisoned in um, in Manus for more than um, six years and in fact was a very consistent you know one of the co- kind of incredible things was you know how he managed to kind of do essentially journalism and campaigning for refugee rights whilst being imprisoned in Manus. And some of this interview will be kind of reflecting, I guess, on some of those experiences. And of course, Baruz Bashani was, you know, managed to get, managed to um, find freedom um, when he was through his, um, um, his authorship. Uh, he, he got invited to speak at a writer's kind of festival or event within New Zealand. And as soon as they set foot in New Zealand, they were able to um, gain um, gain permanent citizenship um, or some form of, um, not permanent citizenship, um, some form of permanent kind of residence. And they're now um, living in New Zealand. Um, but yeah, they have been touring Australia um, as part of um, as part of the release of their new book, called Freedom Only Freedom, and this interview that we're going to be playing, um, which recorded for for the Green Left, is is part of that program. So yeah, hope listeners um, enjoy. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. About Manus prison theory, uh, the roles of journalists, the horrors of refugee detention. That's what we're talking about today on the Green Left Show. I'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this show on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people. This always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and we pay respects to Elders past and present. Also at the beginning, I'd just like to say, if you like the work that we do, please become a supporter of Green Left. It makes a huge difference to our work. Plans start from just $5 a month, and it's the best way to receive the content that we produce and, and to support the project that, we, that, we're, uh, that we're working on. As I said, we're here today with um, refugee Beruz Buchani. Beruz is in Australia promoting his new book, uh, Freedom, Only Freedom. Um, and I, first of all, just want to congratulate you for setting foot on Australia, Australian soil, when Peter yeah, Dutton said, thou shalt not come here. Um, congratulations for the, for the tenacity to, to be here. Thank you. Um, I guess, I, to begin with, I wanted to um, ask... I think there are. I mean, there are so many things in your book, and there are. I think there are so many misconceptions that ordinary people in Australia have. I mean, a lot of us have been involved in the refugee rights campaign. We've we've heard a lot of the stories, but I think a lot of ordinary people in Australia just don't understand the the cruelty of of the detention system, and also they don't understand how the detention of refugees, even if they're not personally detained, is still is bad for all of our rights. They're the things. They're some of the things I was thinking of. But I'm wondering, what do you feel like? What are things that you want people to understand about Australia's refugee um, detention regime, and what what message do you want to present? Yeah, I think you know, uh, 
for many years uh, I have been working to not just to report about what is happening inside the prison camp that people of Australia or anyone who follow this story to understand the soul of the system mm -hmm. and how is brutal you know understand that violence and also understand how system works mm -hmm. because they put people through a uh, of course, we have physical torture as well sometimes, but mostly is a kind of violence which damage people, uh, damage mentally, and uh, that is important, you know, that people understand that, understand how the system is brutal. Mm. So, and also understand the life inside the prison camp. You know, many people have been damaged, you know, because of a long indefinite detention. When you are in an indefinite detention, uh, they use time to torture people. <clears throat> that, that's so, in my works, I try to, you know, convey that. I try to write in a way that people understand that, not only reporting. And also, generally, about the whole policy. What this policy, how this policy is cruel, how this policy is inhuman, and how this policy uh, damaged uh, not only refugees, but political culture in this country, how damaged the, uh, uh, you know, we can't say international reputation, but you know, damage the culture. Mm. And I know that many people in Australia who have been fighting with us for many years, they they have been, you know, they went through, uh, you know, a struggle as well. Yes. So that's generally, I can't say about this work and, you know, what I have been doing. Um, one question I wanted to ask was about I mean, you are a journalist. One of the things in the book was that you, it was said that you'd, it's difficult to be taken seriously as a journalist by Australian media. That's one question, if you could talk about that. But secondly, if you can talk about what are your thoughts about journalism and social change, the connection between journalism and social change? Yeah, you know, what, what I said, that was for a long time ago when I uh, just started to, uh, you know, communicate with journalists in Australia and uh, always the media were treating me like that. And it took a long time, you know, it took years that I changed that. Uh, but I think generally that is a, like a, a colonialism image uh, and an approach by people in the West that they see others see people as an other, see people less, and especially refugees. So that, uh, and still I'm a str I struggle with that, you know, it, it's really difficult because always people judge you, you know, and on that time, so the journalists were definitely judging me, or they couldn't accept, the editors couldn't accept 
that I am able to write, you know, and that is uh, uh, very, uh, you know, unusual because, of course, I come from a country, <laughs> you know, we have media, we have, uh, so I come from a country with 85 million population. Yeah. So that, that image, I mean, uh, about refugees and, you know, marginalized people always exist there. But uh, I don't care, really, because I, I believed in what I am doing. I believed in the power of literature and words and writing and art. And that's why I think I changed that. Uh, but uh, journalism, I think uh, I have a paradoxical uh, feeling towards the journalism and especially mainstream media that how they are a part of system, you know, uh, how they, they, follow the language which created by the government or power structure. Mm. So in my work, I always try to challenge that, always try to, you know, write in a way or create a language to represent us or represent the, the situation, the reality, mm. and not following the language which exists now. And what do you think about journalism? Some people say journalism is about objective reporting. Other people see journalism as a vehicle for social change. How, what, what, what are your views on that? Uh, you know, journalism, I think the problem with journalism is that they uh, rely on official sources. You know, especially when journalism is about uh, dictatorship system. You know, for example, journalism about Iran. You cannot rely on what the government said. You cannot rely on the, the official sources because they lie. They, you, you are facing a, a dictatorship system. But unfortunately, in the West, we see that when the media report about Iran, they, of course, they, look at the other side as well mm -hmm. but is journalism is not about two sides official side and another side you know you are uh, reporting about a dictatorship system so you cannot really rely on that you know and that happened in uh, this context about refugees in Australia as well of course Australia is a free country but the problem is that uh, the system that designed for refugees to, yeah, I mean, this in the in detention industry uh, is a kind of dictatorship. So I'm not talking about Australia, whole Australia. I'm talking about that side of Australia. Yeah. Because no one really cares about refugees, you know? And, uh, the media always rely on uh, uh, official sources instead of relying on uh, sources inside the prison camp, you know. And uh, for example, I remember uh, 
that Peter Dutton always used that. He said something that uh, was uh, not uh, true, you know, and he was lying, you know. Scott Morrison was lying for many years about us. When something happened inside the camp, when someone killed, always they lied and we had to fight a lot to say that they are lying. But the media, they mostly rely on what the government say, you know. Yeah. They highlight them or the, what the government say, what the official sources say was in the headline. And we had to uh, fight to tell truth, tell people that what's really happening. There are many examples about it. For example, Peter Scott Morrison, when Reza Barati was killed, uh, he said how oh, he jumped the fences and he went out. And he was lying, you know. Uh, for example, Peter Dutton, he said that, oh, the, when during the Good Friday shooting on 2017 or 16, I exactly I don't remember. Yeah, he said something that uh, refugees brought uh, a small kid, a boy, into the prison camp and they wanted to rape him. You know, it's, it's, he said something like this. And that was completely, you know, he, he was lying, you know, and why the media should uh, follow that or rely on that, uh, you know, official sources, you know, or what officials say. So, I mean, that that is a kind of dictatorship system towards refugees. One of the fascinating things in your book, I think, is what you describe as Manus prison theory. Could you talk about that? Can you describe what Manus prison theory is and how, how you understand that? Like, yeah, Manus prison theory, I had a long conversation with Omi Tofikian, who uh, translated No Front But The Mountain, and he translated alongside Munis Mansubi, they translated uh, this book and edited it. Mm-hmm. So that comes from our conversation because we had a, a kind of intellectual conversation about the system or different side of the system. So that, uh, and then we expand that uh, conversation uh, and Finally, I wrote an article, uh, the title is Manus Prison Theory. And in Manus Prison Theory, I used the, the movie I, Daniel Blake, so I compared it uh, with that movie. Uh, so generally about Manus Prison Theory, I can say that Manus Prison Theory let us to see Manus system beyond that island, beyond that system, and see see it in the here as well in Australia as well, because Manus uh, has roots in the Australia colonialism mentality. Mm-hmm. So, and which is a bureaucratic system, and. Uh, we can expand it to 
you know, other marginalized people in the society. So, but generally, I can't say about Manus Prison Theory, I can't say that Manus Prison Theory is about a knowledge which, or a resistance knowledge which uh, created by refugees and people who are working with refugees. That knowledge which exists in Manus, you know, and what we can learn from that knowledge, what can we learn from that resistance in that island, you know. So that is the, but we, of course, we can expand it, uh, but I think uh, Manus Prison Theory, uh, you know, is that knowledge, you know, and the reason I am here in Australia, one of the main reasons is to introduce that as well, to remind people uh, that uh, look at Manus again and see our works and our resistance and the, you know, a body of works which people, refugees and people who work with refugees created over the past decade. Mm. And that is uh, that perspective from uh, refugees. Refugees' perspective is important because we have been fighting against the, the you know, dark side of liberal democracy, you know. So our understanding of liberal democracy is very different. Our perspective is very different, you know. So. For example, people in the federal election, people were saying, oh, Scott Morrison is lying, and, you know, and, but we say that for many years. We knew that because they first, they lied to us. First, they, we were victim under what they said, you know, and people in Australia believe in that, you know or most of people believe in that. So, I mean, that is important, that perspective, you know, because we experience that violence. Hmm. I think, to me, it's a bit related. In the book, you talked about um, hope being dangerous for the authorities, but hope was your secret weapon. Do you have any comments about that? Yeah, of course, you know, if we... Uh, if you, if you lose your hope, of course you cannot continue or you accept the situation. You cannot really work or fight against it. But for many years, always, we, we were hopeful that one day we uh, get freedom, one day we challenge that system, one day we uh, so that's what we believe in that. Um, of course, sometimes during the election, uh, people really would lose their hope. But generally, I think we were hopeful. That's why we, we were fighting. We have seen some progress in refugee policy in Australia, but the Labor government is still very limited. Uh, do you have any comments about the current Labor policy? Uh, we didn't see uh, any progress yet. 
you know what we've seen so far is just uh, show up how they so I know that many people in Australia voted for labor because they were not happy of the policy uh, towards refugees uh, but so far we haven't seen uh, any change what we've seen was just uh, playing with some refugees some cases in the media and uh, to pretend that something changed and I think a big part of society want to believe in that and pretend that something changed but really nothing changed yet mm. the policy is there people are in detention that industry is there and also there are thousands of people who have been in Australia for more than a decade and still they don't have a future uh, but hopefully what they said that they do something in future but uh, still if even they process like 19,000 people who they didn't process them if they do that again those people who came here under Medivac they don't have a future in this country so still they are suffering but uh, generally I don't see that something change in this country about refugees totally. for example I, I am here now you know, I got visa to come and visit Australia. That is a part of that, like, uh, show-off. That, that is a part of that uh, propaganda to send a message to people that, are oh, something changed because Beirut is here. Yeah. Mm. But I'm not important, you know. Mm. What is important, those people who are suffering, you should process them. You should mm. uh, give them visa. You should let them stay, let them, you know, establish their lives. I just came here. That's not a big issue. I guess from my point of view as a refugee activist on the outside, I feel like it's a long struggle for us as well, but we need to, we need to get, you know, never give up as well. And there's still a long way to go. Yeah, but I hear that they are going to announce a new policy soon. I don't know. I haven't read the news over the past two days. Did something happen? I'm not, not aware of anything in the last couple of days. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think they probably they will do it soon. Yeah. Yeah. But again, well, announcing a policy is one issue. Uh, the time is enough. For refugees, time is very important. You know, for example, the agreement with Australia and New Zealand or the deal with America. Still, people are waiting to go to America after five years yeah so time time is important so even if they say it if they don't give a, like a, a time a frame time i i don't think that is a again people suffer yeah indeed while we're here one thing i wanted to ask you about was um the the democratic uprising in iran if you have any comments yeah, about yeah. that and, and also, I guess, related, but more broadly on the Kurdish liberation movement, Rojava revolution, what's happening in Iran, I mean, the Kurdish liberation movement. 
Yeah, so my understanding of this uh, uh, uprising in Iran, that most of people in Iran, you know, they want to regime change. So absolutely people uh, want to regime change. So they reject this system and they don't want it. And there is no way that we go back, you know, or people withdraw. So that will happen, but we don't know how, when. So that's without doubt, people are fighting to regime change. But I think this uprising is against two structure. Uh, Persian supremacy, which I call it nationalism, and also is against patriarchism. So among the opposition, we have two sides. One side is left and one side is right. So the left is uh, ethnic minorities like Kurdish people, because this, uh, you know, this revolution has started from Kurdistan and has been leading by Kurdish people and also Baluchi people and other ethnic minorities. Uh, and feminism movement against patriarchism and has been leading by women. So women have a big role in this. So I think it is a in the same time that they are challenging the government, I think there is a, a, a lot of fighting among opposition as well. We say that we are united, but the fight is there. So I think it's very important that people in the West or in the around the world who follow this understand that uh, this revolution is against two structure, nationalism and uh, patriarchism. So feminist movement is allied with ethnic minorities and other minorities in the society. Nilofakoc said regime change is one thing, what we need is system change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they want to, a big part of opposition just want to change the regime without changing the values. But we want to change the value, you know. We want to bring down this patriarchism system. We want to bring down this, uh, you know, Persian supremacy. That is important. I think people who follow, just I uh, try to <laughs> say in some very short, um, sentence, but that is the heart of this um, revolution. Are there any other comments that you want to make while we're here? Is there anything else that you want to say? I think it's very important that I mention that what uh, Omid Tofikan and Munus Mansubi have done, I think it's very important that we recognize their work. I really couldn't uh, do this work without them. And I think it's very important that people see uh, and recognize what they have done. It's really important. They have done a great job on this. And in the first book, No Front But The Mountain. So, uh, you know, that is a part of the 
that resistance knowledge that I'm talking about, you know, that we refugees, we really couldn't, I couldn't be here if Munes and Omid were not exist or they wouldn't approach me to work with me. So I think it's very important what they have done and uh, yeah, we should, and many people in Australia who have been fighting. Thanks everyone for joining us on The Green Left Show. Uh, that's all we've got time for today, uh, but I would like to pay a especially big thanks to Beruz Buchani for spending the time with us today. Uh, as I said, get a copy of his book if you are able to, to do so, or join one of his um, the events on his book tour. Uh, if, also, if you like the work that we do here at Green Left, please become a Green Left supporter. It makes a huge difference to our work. Plans start from just $5 a month, and uh, it's the best way to get the content that we produce and also to, uh, to support the work that we do. You can also support us on Patreon. Um, and there are lots of ways that, lots of other things you can do to, to help out the cause. Until next time, keep on struggling. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to um, the Green Left Show with Baruz Bajani, Iranian Kurdish um, journalist, um, and yeah, and you can um, you can know, and you can listen back to the program by going on to the Green Left website at greenleft.org.au and under media Green Left Show thirty one Baruz Bajani on freedom, hope, and Manus prison theory, um, and you can also find it straight on YouTube. I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. What's it? YouTube.com slash at Greenleft Live, I think, is the URL for the um, channel. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. And um, so, just for the next part of the program, um, I want to go, we'll go cover some news um, from, from, um, from Green Left. Um, the popular is like two articles um, we're going to cover, both one local news story and one world news story. So, I might pass it on to Ari to cover, I guess, the first sort of local um, news story. Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, so this is an article from Green Left. Uh, climate activists found guilty and charged for trying to stop Scarborough Gas, um, which I think was they... Okay, so they were blockading um, the Scarborough Gas Hub. And this is an article from um, Nova Soberowski? Polls. Um, so, from the article, uh, climate activists Petrina Harley and Liz Barrow returned to the Pilbara um, court on January 13 to complete their trial for locking on to block the road into the Woodside Scarborough Gas Hub. Um, and as part of the Scarborough Gas Action Alliance, the pair, alongside Caleb Hausman, used a caravan to block the road up to the Barrow Gas Hub on November 24, um, 2021. So this is a while coming, um, this um, trial. So the activists made the case that their action was a reasonable response to an emergency as the Barrow Gas developments are contributing to catastrophic climate change as well as putting the 50,000-year-old rock art on the peninsula at risk of erosion. Um, though the magistrate didn't end up accepting 
um, the issue of erosion as um, their expert witness was deemed um, unable to testify or um, not qualified. I'm not exactly sure there. Um, so dis- um, despite accepting um, a report on gas affecting our Paris Agreement targets, the judge found the activists guilty, um, and they were charged $100 and 100 hours of community service for blocking the road and an additional $500 for resisting arrest, as they did not release when issued with a move-on notice. Um, further, the West Australian police are seeking another 100 Sorry, 11,000 each. <laughs> just wildly inflated that. Sorry. Um, The Western Australia police are seeking another 11,000 each in costs, um, which is 33,000 total. Um, Houseman who pled guilty has not been charged with the costs, which leaves um, just the two, Harley and Barrow, um, to cough up $33,000 for just arbitrary nonsense, pretty much. Um, So... From Harley, uh, Harley said, the police are trying to hit us with 33000 in costs. Um, they should chase Woodside for the money, as it's their fault we need to protest. And um, said that despite the verdict, it was important to have the case heard, as we're in a climate emergency and it is reasonable to resist it. And the this is from a bit earlier in the article, so I was kind of moving around. So the magistrate found the pair guilty. Um, deeming that the reports they gave did not prove an immediate and sudden emergency. And aside from the the whole... Okay, let's start with the whole anti-democratic problem of arresting and charging protesters. And, like, for some people, possibly... I don't know if this is actually going to be a problem in our audience, but for some people, $600 and 100 hours community service might not sound like all that much, but it's still punishing people for protesting, which should be a democratic right. Like, in general, how else are we, as Jacob's, as the next story that Jacob's going to lead off on, will discuss in depth, protesting is a necessary part of the expression of people's power, right? Our ability to kind of influence or contribute or whatever to the sort of the quote-unquote democratic system that we have at the moment is really focused on our ability to demonstrate and protest, which is why we see this kind of ever-growing wave of anti-protest legislation and particularly legislation against certain varieties of protests. You know, we covered last year um, the, the Victorian government introducing legislation to further penalize um, anti-logging protests and to kind of honestly get a bit ridiculous with that. Um, so, But I won't recover it here. So, the, But the other thing that I wanted to focus on um, is that last bit that I read, which is the magistrate found the pair guilty, deeming the reports did not prove an immediate and sudden emergency. And that I want to focus on because that's really kind of the capitalist response to climate change in a lot of ways um you know sure there's the sort of the like small l liberal so to speak kind of approach to climate change which is the 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 idea the kind of um inexplicable belief that there's some way to create green capitalism but kind of the problem with that is always going to be this idea of immediate and sudden emergency right is that capitalism is always going to be focused on short-term growth 
um, and short-term profit motive. So the the idea that like you know we're however many years away from a complete collapse of the planet's ecosystems and you know our inevitable death at the hands of catastrophes or whatever you know not to overstate it or anything um that idea doesn't matter to capitalism really because they're they're looking at the short term of um how basically how their profits growing and how much money are they making out of this? Um, if we have time, we might talk about a great article from Peter Boyle as well, Billionaires, We Don't Need Them, But They Need Us, which kind of discusses this issue in a bit more detail and depth. But it is the, the kind of crisis of capitalism in general is the short-term drive for profits. And so kind of regardless of what would actually, say, improve society or even functionally improve a capitalist economy, um, like higher wages or like trying not to kill us all by destroying the planet, as, you know, examples, those things aren't considered by capitalism, by the, the kind of neoliberal capitalist class, because they would impact short-term profits. And, um, <clears throat> and so we can see, I mean, capitalism's never been exactly functional in a way that we would probably describe but we can very much see that as like a huge a hugely exacerbated problem by the kind of the modern neoliberalization of capitalism the way that we've sort of pushed ever more toward this profit motive and toward the the interest in short-term profits over any kind of social good or any kind of sustainability in any sense whether it's the worker's ability to live or the planet's ability to survive all right well thanks for that um that report ari and yeah i think you can um you can look up um more info on the article on greenleft.org.au so the kind of next sort of news story i kind of wanted to cover was i'm um, actually um drawing on this article from green left by john mullen um, which and this was published on January um twentieth um, and this um this concerns this is just a bit of a summary of what's kind of happening around um in France um essentially there's a there's a, a work a big battle right now um a workers battle against the government um against um against the Macron government over retirement pensions now. Essentially, um, and this was actually interesting enough. This was probably one of the things that um, Macron kind of um, promised or said they would be looking into um, before he kind of got elected um, in during the federal um, during the French election, presidential elections last year. And essentially, on January ten, um, um, the the basically Macron announced um, a new bill on retirement pensions. And now these, this essentially, basically, this proposal basically wants to propose that to make us work longer by essentially advancing the normal age at which one can retire to 64 years of age from 62. And of course, they also want to rapidly raise the number of years of contributions needed to receive a full pension. Um, from my understanding, I, I imagine that f um, the pension system in France might have some similarities with um, the superannuation system in Australia. If I, if if I'm if I'm mm. if I'm understanding the contributions, but I don't completely know the technical yeah. kind of detail of that. But it's clear in 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 the context of this push by the Macron government to increase um to increase the retirement age, um, you know there's a, there's essentially this has been met with 
um, with mass a mass resistance, with essentially mass mobilize uh, with incredible mass mobilization. So, on 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 January on January tw- um, on January nineteenth, there were more than two million people protested against France, and also to give a bit of historical context, I mean Macron attempted. Um, attempted to do this three years ago and was also met with mass mobilisation. And, of course, he had to uh, abandon his um, his push to weaken the pensions. And I think um, that was also um, one of the kind of things that I think are happening around time is I think the the, the yellow um, jackets or what was I think it? it was yellow vests. Yellow vests. Um, the yellow vest movement, I think, essentially took, took that issue up as well. Now, another kind of element is, I mean... Um, you know, in history, um, you know, in 1982, the Socialist Party government of Fransoso um, Matreya um, have reduced the pension age to 60, and the number of years working to get a full pension was um, fixed at 3.7. Right now, in that context, then it was followed by a right-wing government um, in 1993, added two years and a half to the time you had to contribute to the private sector in order to get a full pension, bringing it to 40 years. In addition, private um, sector um, pensions were calculated based on the percentage of average earnings over the 25 years and no longer over the best um, 10 years. And then, of course, in 2003, um, 2003, public sector pensions were attacked again. Public um, sector workers now also had to work 40 years for a full pension. However, pensions were still based on the average salary of the last six months of work before retirement. Um, and then, of course... In the a in um, 2020 um, 2010 age was increased from 60 to 62. Now in France today, 4.4 percent um, of people over 65 live in poverty. That figure for Britain is 15.5 percent. You know, if the situation, you know, probably the fact that workers, I think there's a kind of real lesson here. The fact that workers have consistently resisted. Um, any sort of um, weakening of the pension system within France has actually meant that you know um, that it has it actually has meant that you know the situation in France um, in terms of people you know older elderly people living in poverty is actually not as um, it's actually less bad than say in countries like Germany in and the United Kingdom and I just think I think it just kind of reflects you know the fact that class struggle actually works as kind of John um, 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 noted. Um, and so, yeah, um, this is definitely building up to being quite a big kind of fight um, in the union movement. I think this is going to be, you know, following the kind of election of the Macron government, this is going to be a kind of struggle to kind of watch. Um, there has been, the left has kind of consistently organised meetings um, in response to support um, this fight. Um, and of course, and then, and then of course, the unions, while the unions often have a preference for negotiation, they are, they they have definitely been pushed to support a certain level of mass action. And so, yeah, there's going to be... Um, there's estimates that 1.5 um, million protesters have been continuously protesting since January 19th, and I expect there will be more, um, there'll be more demonstrations around this issue in the coming, to- um, in the coming time. Mm. Yeah. Um, and just uh, also a bit of context for Australia, because we mentioned the stats in Britain. Um, uh, according to the Borgen Project... Um, 19.5 of Australian elderly aged 65 and up um, live in poverty, which, and we, you know, we can all see Britain um, completely destroying itself, but they have a lower rate of um, poverty for people aged 65 and up than we do. So, 
it's also relevant to think about that situation in Australia. Um, an, an extra thing that I wanted to add, um, because I found it quite interesting, was that the supporters of very extremely far-right, um, you know, legally classified as a fascist, Marine Le Pen, um, her supporter base has actually been really opposed to this change as well. And while the issue of the some people on the right have been talking about some kind of coalition between the left and the far right forming, which, um, no, uh, <laughs> the unions have been very opposed to that. But uh, John suggests that joining this struggle may actually be a way to pull back some of those, the voters of Le Pen to kind of back toward a, a class struggle view of the world and possibly kind of maybe de-radicalize or push them to the left, um, which I would be interesting to see um, the results of that. But I think that that's kind of, it's it's a good way to think about it as well, is that oftentimes the right wing has a, a similar view of what's wrong, but an entirely nonsense response to, you know, what can we do about it? So possibly joining this mass, very leftist organized struggle might actually be a way to push people back to the left. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's definitely an interesting kind of dynamic to kind of observe um, about this. And, you know, it also, I think, I think it does also provide lessons, I think, in terms of the left, in terms of how, the question of, I guess, of how we can, of how we actually counter the far right. Because, I mean... Sometimes it can be very easy to fall in the kind of doom and gloom because there is an element that um, far, you know, that far right, um, far right politics can attract a certain level of support from the working class. And I think you know there is a kind of lesson here that you know you can actually win over workers away from the far right, but it doesn't rely on on being opportunistic and actually pandering to the politics of the far right, Mm. which is actually something that has actually happened in sections of Europe. Some sections of the left have actually adopted a strategy where we have to, we have to cater to, you know, the working class's fear of immigration, like to give one clear example. But what in, in France actually shows that you can actually win over, um, you know, people who might be supporters of Le Pen on the basis of a clearly principled left-wing, um, left-wing program. Um, yeah. So I think that, that I think there's a very I think an important kind of lesson I think there for for the left, um, and I think it's definitely a lesson that could be applied in Australia, even though the far right is clearly much weaker um, and has much less institutional support than say a country like um, France does mm-hmm. currently. All right. Well, I'm just going to go play um, a quick announcement, and um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Now, um, it is now time for the Green Left kind of activist calendar. Um, so to highlight some of the different kind of events that are happening um, in the activist movement, on Friday, or actually from I think from this Friday today to Sunday, January the 29th, um, there's going to be the Palestine Solidarity Conference, which is going to be happening at the Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street in Carlton South. Um, and then on Sunday, um, February the 5th, there is going to be the Pride March at 9am at Fitzroy Street in St Kilda. And then on Tuesday, February the 7th, there's going to be the film screening, Our Islands, Our Home, at 6pm at 75 Reed Street in Fitzroy. And then on February 10th, there's going to be a film screening um, on Baru's, um, which is going to be at 7pm at Cinema 1, at Level 2, Acme, at the Federation Square. Now, I'm just going to go find um, just another event to highlight is in Melbourne, there's going to be a public forum, Sovereignty, Treaty and First Nations Justice, on February the 20th, and at this point, it's going to be at the Multipurpose Room 1 at, at Kathleen Syme Library, 251 Faraday Street. Um, this is a public forum, um, you know, that is basically hearing from two long-standing First Nations activists, Uncle Gary Murray and Lydia Forp, about their views on how to advance treaty, sovereignty and justice for First Nations people. So, yeah, that's happening on Monday the 20th. Um, 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 February um, Monday, February the 20th at 6.30pm with dinner from 6pm at the Multipurpose Room at Kathleen Syme Library, 251 Faraday Street, Carlton. Yeah, um, any other... Is there another event? Yep. Um, I No, I just wanted to mention, as I um, want to do, that uh, if people are looking for more details on these events, you can go to greenlife.org.au slash events. And um, there's some filtering options there, so you can search by location and date and event time, event type. And uh, if you want, you can also sign up to the Green Left newsletter, which will the activist newsletter, which will send out um, fortnightly kind of big lists of events that you can attend. And um, if you want, you don't have to, uh, but if you want, you can put your um, postcode in there or a postcode near you or something and get some more kind of specifically tailored events to wherever you're at. So if people aren't in Melbourne that often or whatever the case is, um, you can still look around for activist sorts of events. And it does cover cultural events and that sort of thing as well, which we often don't bring up just kind of for time on um, the radio. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I will play a quick announcement, and we might just actually play a quick song. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on on FreeCR 855 AM. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500 That's 1300 500 
Wellway supports 3CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to play, I thought we'll play a quick song. Um, this, is quite, this is a bit of a, a known um, cla- um, classic. Um, we're going to play Blackfella, Whitefella by the Morupi Band. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. <laughs>
All right, you're listening to that was Black Fella, White Fella by the Mropi Band, which is a bit of a bit of a classic song. I think it's frequently played on Freeze Yarn, and some of the kind of announcements we use kind of draw um, have drawn on that. <laughs> now, um, I'm going to be playing a recording of a of a speech by um, prominent um, by probably needs no kind of intru- introduction. Gary Foley, who actually spoke, um, you know, long time Aboriginal Aboriginal activist. Um, you know, speaking at um, the Invasion Day rally that actually took place yesterday. So, yeah, hope listeners um, enjoy his speech. I actually str- actually couldn't even get a chance to hear a lot of the speeches in the rally because I was so far away. So, good opportunity for me to also hear um, Gary Foley. So, yeah, I'm looking forward. To, um, we'll play this now. I'm from the Invasion Day rally in Nam, Melbourne. Greetings. I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners. I'd also like to welcome today among us um, the contingent of our Palestinian brothers and sisters who are here in solidarity. I've been talking at rallies like this for over 50 years and therefore I feel entitled to talk to you a little bit about history. The first major organised rally of this sort on this day was in 1938. Ten years before that, the first modern Aboriginal political organisation the Australian Aborigines Progressive Association in northern New South Wales argued for self-determination, political and economic independence, which is just a fancy way of saying Aboriginal sovereignty. For the next 50 years, that was the argument. That was the, that's what we were fighting for. The Black Power Movement in the 1970s was built around the same principles of self-determination, political and economic independence. So here we are 50 years again down the track. And what are we being offered? We're being offered a voice. We've already got five voices in Parliament, actual elected representatives of Parliament, the best ones standing right behind me. And so the Australian Parliament today is not interested in listening to the voice of Aboriginal people, which they're not, then why should we expect that yet another, yet another advisory body? Let me tell you something. From 1972, from Gough Whitlam all the way through to John Howard, every single Australian government set up their own version of an Aboriginal advisory group. They didn't need to have a referendum to do it. They legislated for it. So why do we need a referendum now? Is it just for the few words of change in the Constitution? Folks, I've been there before. I was there in 1967 during the 1967 referendum campaign. I remember the elders telling us then if we could get a yes vote, it would change things 
forever for Aboriginal people. We got the biggest yes vote in Australian history and still fuck all happened. We've still got the same issues today. So why? Why should we expect? So why should we expect a new referendum, which I tell you right now, I've predicted it before this, I tell you right now, this referendum's got a snowball's chance in hell of getting up. This is not 1967 anymore. The campaigners for the yes vote this time aren't the really gun Aboriginal activists of the 1960s. And we've just had 40 years of history wars, culture wars, sky after dark, the Murdoch tabloids, Andrew Bolt, Pauline Hanson. You reckon this country ain't more polarised now than it's never been? Well... They're the reasons why this referendum won't get up. And that if it don't get up, then where does that leave us? Australian governments won't touch us again for another 50 years, you know. So why are we involving ourselves in something that is destined for failure? I urge every one of you people who are going to be called on to vote in this referendum to think very carefully about what you're voting for. And don't be afraid to stick on your ballot paper land rights now or something like that rather than vote for something. <laughs> so, folks, I tell you, you need to make an informed decision now, the advocates so far haven't put enough information in front of me, a university professor, to figure out exactly what the fuck it is they're saying. So what hope has Joe Blow in the suburbs got of making an informed decision about their vote? You've got to be careful not to be sucked in to a measure that will ultimately only be cosmetic. Lipstick on a pig, you know. It will not address the deep underlying issues that still pervade Australian society. And that primary issue is white Australian racism. Now, folks, I see a sea of white faces in front of me. I know you're not the racist. But let me tell you this, the racists live in your community, not ours. So your job is to go home and try and challenge some of the attitudes of those racists. Okay, folks, I'll leave you with those words to ponder as you march around Melbourne. And I'll see you again at the end of the march. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back to um, Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. Um, you were just listening to a speech from Gary Foley from the um, NAM Melbourne uh, 
Invasion Day protest yesterday. And um, unlike Jacob, I did hear most of that speech the first time around. And um, I am still very grateful to have such a clear recording of it. Um, so it's a very agreeable messaging <laughs> for the most part. The end of it, always a very good thing to, to remember. Um, even if even if it may be slightly hyperbolic, it's still a good thing to keep in mind is that we do have to work in our own communities to kind of combat these sorts of ideas. As we were talking about before with the um, the kind of ideas around the, the French protests, possibly drawing people back from the right. Um, but uh, kind of a bit briefly um, before the end of the show, I think we want to talk about an article that I mentioned earlier, which was uh, Billionaires, We Don't Need Them, But They Need Us, um, which is an article from the 25th of January um, by Peter Boyle, and quite a good one at that. And um, so here um, Peter's talking about primarily a the um, Oxfam report on the, um, the Davos World Economic Forum Summit. Um, so the title of that report was Survival of the Richest, How... Um, how we must tax the super rich now to fight inequality. And um, that report reveals once again that the super rich got even richer. Um, <clears throat> meanwhile, billions suffer from a social, ecological, economic, political polycrisis um, driven by the chronically inadequate capitalist system. And um, from the report, we are living through an unprecedented moment of multiple crises. Tens of millions more people are facing hunger. Hundreds of millions more face impossible rises in the cost of basic goods or heating their homes. Um, the climate breakdown is crippling economies and droughts, cyclones and floods are forcing people to flee their homes. Uh, millions are still reeling from the continuing impact of COVID-19, which has already killed over 20 million people. Poverty has increased for the first time in 25 years. Um, and from the article, these multiple crises all have winners, the report said. Um, these the very richest have become dramatically richer and corporate profits have hit record highs, driving an explosion of inequality. So the key statistics from the report, as Boyle says, are mind-numbing. So since 2020, the richest 1% has captured almost two-thirds of all new wealth, nearly twice as much money as the bottom 99% of the world's population. Billionaire fortunes have increased by US $2.7 billion a day, even as inflation outpaces the wages of at least 1.7 billion workers, more than India's total population. Um, food and energy companies have more than doubled their profits last year, paying out U.S. Uh, $257 billion to wealthy stakeholders, uh, sorry, shareholders. Meanwhile, more than $800 million went to bed hungry. Um, only four cents in every dollar of tax revenue comes from wealth taxes, and half the world's billionaires live in countries with no inheritance tax, inheritance tax on money they give their children. A tax of up to 5% on the world's multimillionaires and billionaires could raise U.S. $1.7 trillion a year, enough to lift 2 billion people out of poverty and fund a global plan to end hunger. Um, so... We've kind of all gotten used to the fact that the billionaire class just gets richer and richer. That's sort of seen as like it's just a thing, a function of the way things work at this point. But 
it's worth noticing, it's worth keeping in mind, as Boyle says, that we shouldn't let the apparent automatic capacity of wealth to grow to make us believe this is some magical process. It happens because great wealth is the power to exploit the labor of a great many people. The rich get richer because they get more people directly or indirectly to work for their profits. We don't need billionaires, but they need us. And of course, kind of to briefly summarize a bit more, the the wealth of billionaires does allow them to dodge all of these taxes and to kind of basically avoid, honestly, wage rises or, you know, losing profits in ways that just nobody else has the capacity to do. And same with these, you know, big companies. As Oxfam in the report said, as soon as you join the ranks of the super wealthy, you have a whole range of exciting tools to avoid paying tax and to help you and your family get even wealthier, which, you know, in Australia, there's untaxed capital gains or there's, you know, the reduced capital gains tax, there's negative gearing, there's all these sorts of things. There's just straight up corporate corporate welfare things. Um, And so the, the World Economic Forum Global Risks report warned of an unprecedented uh, risk of greater global economic fragmentation, geopolitical tension, and widespread debt distress. These, in turn, would make it less likely that governments will take the necessary steps to address the climate crisis, which it feels like they've got that ass backwards, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> that's why, but that's why Green Left says the world cannot afford to stick with the capitalist system to rise to today's social environmental challenges. And if you agree with that, you can make a donation to the Green Left Fighting Fund um, or become a supporter today. And so you can go to greenleft.org.au slash support if you want to subscribe um, to the newsletter, sorry, to the, the paper, or if you want to give one-off donations or whatever, or you can go to greenleft.org.au slash donate to just specifically give um, donations rather than, you know, on top of or rather than subscribing. Um, but the final the final paragraph of this article I wanted to focus on briefly before we run out of time, because I think it's really really pivotal to understanding ne- what neoliberal capitalism is in terms of an ideology. So the World Economic Forum's solution, however, to all of these problems is to shift to something called stakeholder capitalism, in which the rich corporations act as trustees of society. The billionaire class is telling us to trust us, so telling us to trust them. But the reason this really stu- stood out to me when I read it is Peter Boyles writes some great articles for Green Life, but this really stood out to me because it's my understanding, and I read this a while ago, so I might be slightly misremembering it, but it's my understanding that the early sort of ideology behind neoliberalism before it was really broadly implemented as it is now was that inexplicably, somehow, um, it's premised on the belief that more corporate power will make a return to fascism less likely. Um, which obviously um, we've seen that that's just categorically untrue because the kind of historical analysis is that fascism rises out of crises and neoliberalism encourages crises. So that's nonsense. But it's sort of, I feel like it's important to understand that that is sort of this solution proposed by the World Economic Forum. This idea of stakeholder capitalism is just like, that is sort of the, the premise, the base ideal of neoliberalism that somehow this vast, like, wild, destructive concentration of wealth up and up and up will somehow empower the rest of society, regardless of the fact that that is just false. Nobody, nobody reputable or reliable, no studies have ever found that that's true. And yet we still have 
bodies like the World Economic Forum, we still have all these billionaires and capitalist governments who just seem to believe that that's true or at least claim to believe that that's true because obviously all of these organizations also profit from saying that that's the case. Um, but we're hitting basically the end of the show now. So thanks everybody for listening. And again, if you want to support us, you can go to greenleft.org.au slash support or greenleft.org.au slash donate for just kind of specific donations or one-off donations. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good note to kind of end on. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, I think, yeah, I think we had a pretty good program, and we'll have, um, we'll have, um, we'll have, um, we'll be back next Friday from um, seven to eight thirty a.m. And yeah, this on um, this program will also be uploaded onto the FreeCR website if you want to look back on it. Now, stay tuned for Earth Matters, which is going to um, be um, following this program, and yeah. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.